There are two lines of the Buddha's teachings which have tremendous implications for the understanding of ourselves and the understanding of our practice. They are the first lines of the Dhammapada. Mind is the forerunner of all things. All actions are led by the mind or created by the mind. Mind is the forerunner. Yes? Well, I'll try to speak a little louder. And if you still can hear, maybe you should. Well, you might want to come up closer then. Is it on there? (laughs) The Dhamma of technology. (laughs) This understanding that all of our actions in some sense our whole world comes out of the mind that our actions are led by the mind and even in these first few days of sitting begin to see how very difficult it is to keep the mind steady to stay present it's so easy to get lost in thoughts and feelings and daydreams and reveries. We don't actually know what's going on. We take a breath or two, we feel a breath or two, and then the mind is off and it's gone and it's lost. What's so interesting is that what we get lost in doesn't even have to be pleasant. You know, we can be sitting here reliving old hurts and pains and resentments and angers. And even though we're suffering, you know, in doing it, still there's this attraction or, or habit of not being present, not being aware, not being awake. Already, Just in this first week of practice, you have had the first insight of insight meditation. You've advanced to the first great level of awakening. And that is how difficult it is, the realization of how difficult it is to stay awake, to stay mindful. Mind is so slippery. You know, we try to give it a very simple object just to be present with and a couple of breaths and we're off and we're on a train of association and we don't even know where the train is going it's not that we kind of hop on this train and we have a destination in mind we get on with our eyes closed and we're off and we end up in the most fantastic places how often do we find ourselves entangled and enmeshed in some drama or other you know, some story some emotion. And in this being lost, it's not simply 
a question of being lost and then we reawaken and we're back in the moment. But it's really to become aware of when we're lost. There's this contraction at that time into the sense of I, the sense of selfness or I-ness happens when we lose the quality of wakefulness. It's as if we contract into a thought or into an emotion or into a drama. The Buddha said that there is nothing so quickly changeable as the mind. And this was true in the Buddha's time, it's true today, it's the nature of our conditioned minds. So the Buddha said some things about it which are relevant to what we're doing here. He said, a wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is very difficult to perceive. It's extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. The mind well guarded and trained will bring happiness. And there's another stanza which is very powerful. And we can see the truth of it not only in our own lives, but as we look about in the world. Said, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. A well-directed mind creates more well-being than even the loving actions of one's parents towards their children. There's so much inherent power in this mind of ours for creating harm and suffering or for creating happiness or well-being. And it's because of this, it's because of the insight into how slippery it is, how often we get lost, and the insight into its potential power. It's from seeing this, from this insight, that we can understand the value and critical importance, the absolutely critical importance for us in our lives, for ourselves and for the world to come to some understanding. How is it working? Can we come to a place of some steadiness, of some peace, of some insight? We create ourselves and we create the world from this mind. There are endless examples, of course, in all of our lives but there was a very dramatic example that happened just this past summer. Sharon and I had the rather dubious fortune of being in the Soviet Union during the coup. And we were about, the, the course was supposed to begin on the day the coup happened. We woke up in the morning planning to go to this retreat, and instead we got the news there's this right wing coup. <laughs> and of course, I know they remember that first day or two, but there was tremendous uncertainty of what was going to happen, whether it be civil war and tanks coming into the city and you know, all these kind of images you know, of potential disasters started arising. And it was just so interesting to see and understand both what was happening in my own mind and the scenarios it was creating, and also to understand that on a more global level, where did that coup come from? 
came out of people's minds. You know, some people had certain ideas and they did certain actions and it set into consequence what has turned out to be an amazing sequence of events. Where was it all rooted? It was all rooted in particular kinds of thoughts, particular kinds of mind states. The world is created out of the mind. It's essential that we come to some understanding of it. Otherwise, we're just playing out blindly conditioning, often creating tremendous suffering for ourselves, for other people. The question is, how can we accomplish this? How can we actually accomplish a certain steadying of the mind? How can we accomplish coming to an understanding, a really clear view of how it's all working? The great spiritual genius of the Buddha was that he saw the problem so clearly. He saw the problem of suffering in the world and he also saw the solution. And they saw it with such clarity and with such precision. They saw that the key to this steadying of the mind, the key to the development of a liberating wisdom, comes through the practice, the systematic practice of mindful attention, of mindful awareness. And in one sense, it's so obvious. You know, if we want to understand things, what do we have to do? We have to look. We have to see. We have to observe it. But from this point, there's a great subtlety of understanding that's involved. Exactly what this mindful awareness means. Because there is a whole spectrum of states which we call awareness. And yet it's only a very particular kind of awareness, which is mindfulness. And so, not only is it very possible, it's very probable that we spend most of our time in different kinds of awareness that are not at all being mindful. It's possible to be aware without being mindful. And that's what I would like to talk about tonight. Just so we have a very clear understanding of what this special quality of mindful awareness is. As a way of understanding it, give a few examples of the kind of awareness that is not mindfulness. And we see it very often in the course of our practice, the course of our lives. We think we're being mindful, and it's really not. Just a few examples. We can see it with the breath. You know, we're with, we're aware of one breath, two breaths, three breaths. And then depending on the particular slant of our conditioning, thoughts might arise after three breaths. Hmm, I'm doing pretty good. 
Three breaths in a row. That'll be half, half of the yogi population. The other half of the yogi population, depending on the conditioning, we're with one, two, three breaths. I'll never get this. You know, and just, this is impossible. My mind keeps wandering. In all of these attitudes, we're kind of aware of the breath, but there's an overlay. And there's an overlay of a sense of self in that. I'm not doing well, or I'm doing great. And so instead of simply being with the breath, we're creating something extra. Or there may be the sense we're with the breath and we're feeling one, two, three, four times. And that sense of waiting for something to happen. Well, I've been with four breaths. (laughs) Where's some excitement? In this situation, there may be this, this basic awareness of the breath, but it's not the simple, direct, unencumbered mindfulness of it. We're aware of it with an overlay. So that's not a mindful awareness. We're cluttering our experience. Often, very often, in observing sensations in the body, we find ourselves being aware of them without being mindful. The body, and feeling the body, can reveal so much to us about the nature of the mind. That's why the Buddha gave so much emphasis to mindfulness of the body. Because it shows us so much about what's going on. How are we relating when there are painful feelings? Is there resistance? Is there reluctance? Is there fear? Is there kind of half-hearted willingness to really feel it, to really open to it? When there's not a genuine face-to-face acceptance and openness with whatever is arising, when we're not really willing simply to be there and to open, when our willingness is half-hearted, what happens is that it generates a feeling of struggle. And often in the practice, when we have that sense of just struggling to be here, struggling to be present, that struggle is a feedback. That's saying something. And what it's saying is, something is going on that we're not opening to, that we're not willing simply to be with. There's an overlay often with pleasant feelings as well. We have pleasant sensations in the body. Common reaction to a sitting with those nice, pleasant feelings. Oh, I'm really doing well now. This is a good sitting. This is a good meditation. We, we measure the quality of our sittings very often by whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's not mindfulness. We may be aware that those pleasant feelings are there. But again, it's not a simple, pure, direct awareness. We're creating something around it or over it.
We can see these reactions or attitudes with respect to the breath. We can see it in the different sensations in the body. We can see it in relationship to thoughts. People come to meditation practice with some strong opinions and ideas about the thinking process. I mean, how often is there this condemning quality, this judging quality, I wish they would go away, I wish they would stop, and we think they're bad and they shouldn't be there. That's not mindfulness. That's aversion. The other side of that is the tendency of the habit we have, which is also very strong, of either by choice or by habit, indulging our thoughts. Oh, this is a good one. (laughs) We spend the next 45 minutes solving our problems or having some brilliant idea or whatever. And then at the end of the sitting, oh, that was good. This one went fast. <laughs> you know, and we, we just reinforce this indulging of the thought process, which is as much of a problem as the judging or the aversion towards them. In both cases, we may be aware that the thinking process is going on, but it's not mindfulness. Because there's an extra reaction, an extra attitude about it. see it in relationship to the breath, to sensations, to thoughts. We can see it very clearly and with tremendous consequence in relationship to our emotions. How do we relate to the whole range of emotions that come in our lives and in our practice? Do we get lost over and over again in them? Do we start drowning in the emotions? Do we become so completely identified with every emotional storm or story that comes up? So one side of it is we just get caught again and again in these emotional whirlwinds. The other side of it, which again is equally not mindful, is a denying or a a pushing them away or a pretense, oh, I'm not feeling angry. (laughs) We might, might be boiling rage inside and we're not willing to see it. We're not willing to feel it. Again, a signal that this kind of denial might be going on is if we're sitting or walking or going through the day and there's a kind of unidentified sense of struggle. That somehow we're trying to be mindful, we're trying to be aware, but we're in this state of struggling with our experience. Very often it's because there's some emotion going on, some feeling, and it might be a strong one, it might be a very mild one, that we're just not opening to. And so it keeps pulling us. Repetitive, obsessive kinds of thoughts also often signal the presence of an unacknowledged emotion. And we have the same thoughts going around again and again and again and again. It's interesting to look, okay, what's feeding that? What's the source? What's the wellspring 
of those very repetitive, obsessive thoughts. It would be worth looking to see, is there some feeling state that's being hidden, that's being covered? In terms of understanding our relationship to emotions, it can be very valuable to examine what our basic attitude is about them. Because we bring that attitude to the meditation practice as well. Some people have the idea that great catharsis is good. And so, really looking as these motions arise and are with us, that the idea and the value is in catharting. And then, when we're not doing that, somehow something is not happening that's supposed to be happening. So that's one side, and it creates a kind of imbalance. The other side is, and this, this, happens, this happens equally as often, that people can have the idea or the attitude, oh, these emotions are bad, I shouldn't be having, having them. So that's just the other side that's, that's pushing them away. Both of them is not mindfulness. Both get in the way, both of those attitudes get in the way of a simple, clear seeing of actually what's going on. In all of these examples, in our attitudes about the breath, our reactions to different sensations, pleasant or unpleasant, our feelings about thoughts, our attitudes about emotions, in all of these, we might be aware, we might be aware of what's going on, but we're not on the meditative track. So this is very important to see. So what is this quality of mindful awareness? What's this special this special quality which actually gives us a taste of freedom in the mind, which is very different than the reactive mind? It's mindful awareness, this very special kind of awareness, is best characterized by a very simple phrase. That is the observing power of bare attention. What does bare mean in bare attention? It means simple. It means direct. It means not evaluating, not judging, not commenting. Just the simple, bare, direct being with whatever the experience might be. It means not making up stories about our experience. Then it's no longer bare attention. Then it's convoluted attention. You know, and we start living in our own stories. We start living in our own dramas. Attention here means that observing power of the mind. We put the two together, bare attention. It's that observing power of the mind which doesn't judge, doesn't evaluate, doesn't compare, 
It just is with what is arising, very, very simply. I think one of my favorite teachings you know, in, the, in the whole Buddhist canon, the Buddhist summed it all up to this one person who was in a very big hurry to get to the essence of things. Right? And they were just standing in the middle of the road and, and so the Buddha had to make it very, very concise. He said something so simple and yet so profound. He said, in the scene with the eyes, there is just what is seen. And in the heard, there is just what is heard. And in the sense, the smell and taste and sensed in the body, there is just what is sensed. And in the thought, there is just what is thought. What could be simpler? In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. We don't have to do anything more than simply be with each experience as it's presenting itself. The breath is coming by itself, the sounds are coming by themselves, thoughts are coming by themselves, sensations. We can sit back and relax and just enjoy this show of passing phenomena. One of the phrases my first teacher, Munindraji, used, which stuck in my mind through many years of practice, he would say over and over again, empty phenomena rolling on. That's what this process of the mind and body is. It's just empty phenomena rolling on. In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. So experiencing and strengthening this particular quality of bare attention is like tuning in to a particular frequency and a whole spectrum of frequencies. There's lots of ways we can be aware. Most of them have a lot of static. There's a lot of clutter. There's a lot of overlay of reaction and story and interpretation. Mindful awareness is so simple. It's that station which comes in with crystal clarity, with crystal purity. The Buddha offered some very deep and pragmatic suggestions for actually how to find the station. Because sometimes we're playing with the tuning dial and we seem to go right over it. Okay, how can we how can we just learn to rest in this in this basic clarity of mind? He said there were two conditions two causes for the arising of this kind of mindful awareness. It's not something outside of ourselves. It's part of our own minds. This is within us. We just have to find it. We have to find that space. We have to be in that space. 
Okay, how do we do this? Just I want to take a, a brief diversion here for a moment. In the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma, when there is the description of consciousness in the mind, there is a very detailed and sophisticated analysis of all the different qualities of mind that arise in every moment of consciousness. And these are called mental factors. Over the course of these three months, we're going to be talking a lot about these different mental factors. They come in again and again from different angles. So mental factors are simply certain qualities or functions arising in consciousness at particular times. Okay, so the first factor for the arising of mindful awareness, the thing that helps us to find this particular channel, this particular station, is the factor of perception. I want to talk a little bit about what perception means. Perception is that factor of mind which recognizes an object. It recognizes the distinguishing marks. So in other words, we see something is yellow and something is blue. It's that factor of perception which can recognize what makes them different. And it stores those distinguishing marks in our memory so we know for the future. We recognize in the future, yeah, that's yellow, that's blue, that's a woman, that's a man, that's a car, that's a house. That's the factor of perception. It's the recognition. This is all going to be leading someplace, so <laughs> see if you can stay with it. It's quite interesting, at least to me. <laughs> Perception as a factor is not, it's not a penetrating factor. It's a very light. That is, it's just the surface, it's just the surface recognition of the object recognizing what's going on. In this sense, it's much lighter. It has a much lighter touch than mindfulness. Because the nature of mindfulness is to go deep into the object, to understand it deeply, to feel it deeply. Perception is not like that. Perception is just on the surface, and it picks out. picks out the distinguishing marks. Okay, here we go. It's because perception, this very simple surface recognition of the object, is a condition for mindful awareness to arise. It's because of this that we can begin to understand and appreciate deeply the value of the mental noting as a tool. Because the mental noting is a function of perception. It's not a function of mindfulness. The noting is that simple recognition of the arising object. In-breath, out-breath, rising, falling, hearing, pressure, tightness. It's just that surface, simple light 
acknowledgement, yes, there's this, there's this, there's this. The noting is a function of perception, not of mindfulness. And that's why people often feel that the noting gets in the way of mindfulness. And here we are trying to plunge into the object and really feel it, and we're bothered by this note. It feels like it's just getting in the way of our doing that. But if we understand what its function is, that the noting is not mindfulness, and that's not its purpose, then we don't have to overburden that tool. We don't somehow have to make the noting squeeze mindfulness out of it. Because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is that of perception, just recognition. This recognition is the first step for then becoming deeply mindful. I'd like to just talk a little bit about the different ways this technique of noting as a function of perception actually brings about this very clear, precise, accurate, lucid quality of mindful awareness. The two are connected. The first way that it creates mindfulness, the noting is like a picture frame. Now, when you put a frame around the picture, what's the purpose? The purpose of it is to highlight or to focus our attention on the picture. It's a quite an unusual person who will stand in front of a framed picture and look at the frame. Maybe some people do that, (laughs) framing experts. But really the idea is not to look at the frame. It's just serving that function of focusing our attention on what's within it. That's how the noting should be used. It's just that quality of recognition which frames the moment. Oh yeah, there's this. And then we really look to see what the this is. It's also feedback. The noting is feedback in the moment of whether we really are paying attention or not. There's a very prevalent and might even be contagious yogi disease. And that is something which I call more or less mindfulness. (laughs) We said and we're kind of mindful. You know, we're kind of paying attention, but not really. You know, it's just enough so that we're, we're a little connected. And one way of diagnosing this disease, there are some very, very good diagnostic tools. If you're noting, you know, and you're with the breath, and you're noting falling, and the breath is rising, <laughs> that's a good sign that you're in this condition. And what that feedback is telling us in that moment, and this is the feedback of the noting, 
if we weren't noting in that moment, we could, we could be going on in that more or less mindfulness for a long time and not recognize that our attention is not really present, not fully present. What that feedback is telling us is that the connecting moment is not strong. Because if, you know, in those two moments of connecting and sustaining, when the connecting is strong, then there's no confusion about the note being accurate. When the notes are not accurate, it means we're not connecting clearly. So it's useful. It's a very useful feedback in meditation. The tone of the note can show us a lot about the nature of our mind and the reaction, the reactivity of our mind. It can tell us whether we're simply being aware or we're on the track of mindful awareness. So we're just observing how we're noting, thinking, 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 you know. And we can feel in the tone of the note a tightness, an aversion, a dislike. That is very valuable. Because instead of just carrying that attitude invisibly, it's revealed to us. And what is very magical, it's it's a real magic of the practice, by softening the tone of the note, we are softening and relaxing our minds. It's actually a very efficacious way let me just drop back and be with what's happening. We drop back into that frequency of real mindfulness. Okay, so this factor of perception is the first condition for mindfulness to arise. And it's the mental noting which is the function of perception. That's how the noting fits into all of this. Remember, it's very light. It's just the surface recognition. We don't have to give a lot of heavy effort to it. It's just the lightest touch to frame what's there so that we can see it clearly, so that we actually can become mindful of it. The second condition for the arising of mindfulness is mindfulness itself, which means that in each moment that we are clearly aware, clearly mindful of what's happening, it becomes the condition for mindfulness to arise in the next moment, in the next. So the more we rest in it, the more we abide in it, the more continuity we begin to have with mindfulness in this whole stream of phenomena. This is really how we can understand what's meant by the building of momentum in the practice. What does building momentum mean? It means a greater and greater continuity of moments of wakefulness of moments of real meditative awareness.
So we strengthen these two conditions. We strengthen the perception and we strengthen the mindfulness. And out of both of them comes the the experience, the taste of a mind that is in a free relationship to each object that is arising. One of the images which I have been playing with a lot and exploring a lot is the image of the mirror-like quality of mindful awareness. I just think of a mirror in relationship to all the objects which come in front of it. Everything comes in front of it. You know, beautiful and ugly and distant and near and everything. What does the mirror do? It just reflects back whatever it is. The mirror doesn't kind of have a hand reaching out, oh, I like that one. (laughs) Or it doesn't kind of reach out and push away. There's no movement of the mirror toward or away from. And what's also amazing about this mirror, this mirror of the mind, is that it reflects what comes in front of it effortlessly. The mirror doesn't stop to think, oh, I really need to reflect this object. (laughs) The object comes in front of it and the mirror reflects it. Mindful awareness, when we really are abiding in it, it's this amazing, amazingly simple, lucid quality of knowing, of, of being mindfully aware of whatever it is that's arising. We're taking a step and we're just with it. There's a thought, we're just with it. There's a sensation, we're just with it. There's no confusion, there's no struggle. And so, if it's helpful to you, you might just play with that image a little bit in your practice to get the sense or the flavor of effortless wakefulness. It's not effortless in the sense of we just let our minds wander completely and get lost because then it's just going back to sleep. It's abiding in wakefulness. Resting in wakefulness. We do it through the factor of perception, that is the recognition of the object, and we do it through each moment of mindfulness, which conditions the arising of the next. So that's our practice. To develop this very lucid and pure quality of mind. We practice it with each breath. Do you have some feeling about how simple it really is? The breath is happening by itself, so we don't have to do anything to make ourselves breathe. We just have to sit here. The breath is happening. And simply to rest in the feeling of the in-breath, of the out-breath, of the rising, of the falling. 
when the mind goes off, when we do get lost, which will happen, we just come back again, very simply. No struggle, no forcing, no tightening. We know that we're off, we just come back. We feel it carefully, we feel it deeply, we feel it delicately. There's, there's really a tremendous delight when we find this place of simplicity. It does not have to be a struggle. It's just, if we're off, we come back. When we're actually awake, when we're present, we feel it with care. The breath is actually an amazing phenomenon. We don't really give it its due. Very often, yogis get bored with the breath. Another breath. (laughs) I've had yogis imagine how many more breaths they have to take till the end of the course. (laughs) And it just feels unbearable. But there's another whole way of understanding it. To me, the breath is the most amazing phenomenon because it's the most immediately accessible phenomenon which actually is sustaining our life. You're bored with the breath? Stop breathing. (laughs) What happens? I mean, it's an amazing thing that each breath, it's not simply air going in and out. Something very vital is happening. I mean, it's our life which is coming in and out. Can we be respectful enough of the process to actually take some interest in it? Because it's an amazingly powerful energy and process that's going on. But we need to be sensitive enough to really feel it, so that we're not lost in all our thoughts, and all our stories, and all our fantasies. It's possible to really connect with the power of this breath, and what it's doing each time, of how it is sustaining our lives. This is not poetic. This is really happening in each moment. And so when there's that quality of understanding, each breath becomes something of interest. Okay, what, what just happened? What is this? When we're on this track of mindful awareness, when we found this frequency of real purity of attention, where it's not reactive, it becomes much easier to open to the whole range of sensations in the body. Now, there's a real quality, this mirror-like quality allows us to, to experience the whole range of pleasant and the whole range of unpleasant, of painful. We're really open. So instead of getting lost, especially with the painful sensations, getting lost in fear or lost in self-pity or lost in a kind of bargaining mode, you know, I'll watch you if you'll go away. Instead of all of those reactions and attitudes to the painful feelings, when we found the track, and really found this quality of mindful awareness, it becomes very simple 
thing. Let me feel it. Let's just feel it. And it becomes really interesting to see how the body is manifesting in this vast range of sensation that happens. And this is our life. These experiences are our, our life. Can we open to them? Simply. Very, very simply. This mindful awareness, the clarity of it, also opens us to a whole new way of being with emotions. You know, these strong energies that come up in the body and the mind. And they're powerful. Emotional energy is very, very powerful. The very first gift of, of the mindful awareness is that these emotional energies are no longer unconscious filters on our experience. We really begin to recognize both the very obvious ones, but also these very subtle ones. Because when they're unrecognized, it's as if we're looking at experience through the filter of the emotion. And so we're not seeing anything clearly. We're not seeing the emotion and we're not seeing the experience. Yeah, and there's such a rich array that arises. There's sadness, and there's loneliness, and there's happiness, and there's peace, and there's anger, and there's rage, and there's stillness, and there's joy, and there's, there's so much richness. Can we, can we simply sit back and open and just watch how it all comes, not being drawn into or entangled in the story because then we're lost. We're not really experiencing the emotion mindfully then. We're entangled in an identification with it. The practice is to learn to abide in this state of mindful awareness. The, the emotions come and they might be conditioned by a story or certain thoughts but when the emotion comes Okay, what is this? What actually is sadness? You know, what is anger? What is fear? What is loneliness? Not thinking it out, but we know it by the direct experience of the quality of the energy. So there's this tremendous understanding that grows. Not only do we understand ourselves, because these emotions are functioning the same way in everybody else. When we understand ourselves, we understand others. When we settle into this space of mindful awareness, just that clarity of being with each object that is arising, the breath, sensations, emotions. We can also do it, can also have this mindful awareness with thought itself. And one of the most interesting, ongoingly (laughs) interesting phenomena for me is over and over again 
understanding and seeing the nature of thought. What is this phenomena of thought? When we don't see it, when we don't understand it, we are enslaved by it. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. It's our thoughts which are running our lives. Do this, do that, go here, go there. Everything we do in our lives is prompted by this little voice in the mind, or many little voices in the mind. Very rarely do we stop and really look at, okay, what is the nature of thought? What is this phenomenon? Instead of either simply following it or reacting against it or judging it or trying to push it away, can we really take a look? And if you don't quite understand it the first time, don't worry. There'll be lots more opportunities. <laughs> There's this endless supply of thoughts which keep coming. To really see when we get a taste, a real genuine deep taste of the emptiness of the thought process, the emptiness of self in the thought process, it is tremendously liberating. It opens up a vast new space in the mind and way of being in the world. Because it gives us the, the spaciousness to really choose which thoughts to act on and which to not. We're not, we're not continually then being driven in one way or another by every thought coming through. So there's tremendous opportunity the thoughts that are arising in the practice need not be a problem. If we really take it as an opportunity, yeah, what is that? What is that phenomenon? And the more we look, you see how, how quickly they often disappear. They're nothing. And until we see that, they're everything. <laughs> they're even more subtle and in some way even more fascinating, is through this mindful awareness, when we just get on this track of bare attention, of understanding yet just what there is, we begin to explore and understand the nature of consciousness itself. What, what is this mystery of knowing, of consciousness? I mean, right now, you know, we're seeing one another and we're hearing. What is that? What is that knowing? How does it arise? What is its qualities? The only way of understanding this, and we could read 10,000 books and we won't get it. What you're doing here moment after moment, that's the exploration. Okay, we sit, we quiet the mind, we steady the mind. And we just have this amazing opportunity to really see, to understand. Now, the most profound nature of who we are, of what this is. This mindful awareness is this very strong and clear and lucid, has a tremendous quality of lucidity 
this lucid quality of mind out of which a genuine liberating wisdom happens. And so it's to understand very deeply that every single moment of experience has value. If you can do the practice with that in mind, that every moment of experience, it's not only the formal times of sitting and walking, it's everything, it's just everything. Can we practice abiding in this clear, unadorned, mindful awareness. Everything reveals itself from that space. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.